Hey everybody, this is Mike Van Meter, and welcome to the Mike Van Meter Show. And this is your one-stop shop for everything having to do with conservatism, patriotism, Americanism, and, and frankly, just the right way of living your life as far as I look at it. And uh, I want to thank you for joining me today. And I have a special guest, and that guest is Eddie Garcia, and he is running for the United States Senate here in the Commonwealth in Virginia. And this is an exciting time because, as it turns out, today the Democrat opponent, uh, that being Tim Kaine, announced that he is running for re-election. And uh, so this is, it was not planned that that was, that we were going to have Eddie on the show today after that announcement, that, but that's the way that worked out. We're going to talk to him a little bit about that. Now, I met Eddie at a function a few weeks ago. I, I went to one of his meet and greets and really got to meet him, his wife, his family, and a lot of his supporters. And I tell you, very impressed with this guy. He's an Army veteran, and we're going to talk about that here. And uh, just a patriot. And we need people in office that are really service-minded, and and I think personally that we need to have more people that have been in the service fields, whether it's the, the military service or the other services such as first responders, the medical field, EMTs, like that. I think we need people in office that have that sort of a background because, you know, that people just appreciate the country, feel obligated to help the country, and are already service-minded. And uh, Eddie was... Uh, grateful um, for the opportunity to come on the podcast, but we wanted to do it in person, and I'm glad that he did that because I, I really think that it's much more personable that way. And uh, as I get to know Eddie more, you're going to get to know Eddie more. And uh, with that, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. And yeah. so um, hopefully this becomes a regular thing yeah. in the future. Yeah. So as you said, for your listeners, my name is Eddie Garcia. I'm a 22-year Army veteran. So uh, at the beginning, I'll start, I guess, at the beginning. When I was 17, I joined uh, the United States Army Reserves uh, when I was still in high school. I had come from a family of service. So um, my grandfathers, both of them fought in in the United States Army in World War II, one with the Army, one with the Army Air Corps at the time. My great-grandfather, Andres Garcia, fought in World War one, he was an infantryman in World War One, and so um, I just come from a from a family of service uh, where there are very few opportunities because we come from you know rural uh, South Texas originally near the Rio Grande Valley where there aren't many uh, opportunities. So either you're in the oil field or in the oil and gas industry. Or, you know, you join the service that those are pretty much the, the, the two main ways that people kind of escape um, that lifestyle. And so when I was 17, I joined the Army Reserves. I would go to high school during the week and I was doing Army drill, uh, Army drill during the weekends. And so a week after graduation, I went off to basic training. I was in the reserves for two and a half years in 99 and 2000. And in 2001, 9-11 happened. And as it changed everybody's way of thinking, it changed mine. And so I went back to the recruiter and said, look, I want to get out of the reserves. I want to go to active duty. And so my stepfather at the time um, was a 173rd Vietnam vet. So uh, the 173rd Airborne Brigade out of out of Vincenza, Italy. Uh, he told me the only piece of advice he gave me is that if you're going to go on active duty, go airborne. That way they respect you. So I went to airborne school, um, got sent to Germany for the first you know, four or five years, I'm, I met my wife. We got married, started having kids, um, went to ranger school, uh, passed that. Uh, I spent the next 22 years deploying uh, overseas and serving our nation. And so the last five years have been on 
uh, in Virginia, in Northern Virginia, out of the Pentagon. I've been working with the House and with the Senate to pass legislation, legislation that focuses on veterans, that focuses on Gold Star families, and of course, focuses on enhancing our military and making sure that our troops are prepared and equipped and funded appropriately for, for any of the operations that and, and protective operations that, that we need to uh, engage in. And so that's my background uh, from an experience perspective. Also, uh, from an education perspective, uh, I have a master's degree in, from George Washington uh, University in legislative affairs, so also at the federal level. So when people ask me why do I think I should be um, a legislator at the federal level, I mean, I've lived for the past two decades consulting and living federal policy, uh, both good, bad, and otherwise, uh, and my education background is also at, in the federal policy realm. And so that's where my expertise is. That's where my experience is. That's where my education is. And so that's what we're doing. We're running for Senate in 2024 against Tim Kaine, who just announced he's going to run. Uh, I welcome the challenge uh, because I believe when we put our bold vision for the future uh, versus his you know, failed policies of the past that uh, reflect 1994 more than they reflect 2024, I think that we're, we're going to be on, on the right side of history, that we're going to be in the, in the most advantageous position. I think that the, the people across the Commonwealth will, will see the contrast pretty starkly. I think that we have, uh, we're, we're younger, we're bolder, we have ideas. Uh, we've lived, uh, over the last 20 years, 30 years in the policies that Tim Kaine and, and the Democrat party has supported. And, and it, we see the results and those results aren't good. We have uh, a lot of our institutions, a lot of our organizations that, that that are supposed to work for the people, no longer work for the people. And conversely, they actually hinder the people. And so we'll get into some of those topics, I'm sure. But I, I'm I'm excited about the race. It's uh, 21 months away uh, before before the general election day. But, you know, to beat an entrenched political establishment figure like Tim Kaine, it's going to take that that long. He's he's got his hooks in a lot of different uh, areas with a, with, with a few donors that, uh, give him a lot of money. Uh, but I can't worry about that or focus on that. We're, we can only control what we can control. And so as an army guy, we're going to execute a, as fast and as uh, actionable as we can. And we're just going to get after it. Yeah, that's really, really exciting. And he really is entrenched, but, but I'll tell you something, the American people and the people here in Virginia in particular, since that's where we are, I am hearing everywhere including here in northern virginia which is very very blue people are frustrated they're frustrated with what's happening to the country and they're hap- they're 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 you know they they always say that politics is local right it's the kitchen table stuff it's the you know how how does this affect me cuz you hear this from a lot of people they'll say I, i'm not interested in politics it doesn't affect me but it does affect them and that's really come into contrast uh, over the last two years, and particularly when it comes to education, when it comes to the, the drug, drug epidemic, when it comes to the economy, those are really the, those are the things that affects everyone. You cannot escape that. Uh, what are some of the issues? Now, I know you've talked to me about education offline. Let's maybe start with that because here in Virginia, and if you're not, if you're listening to this podcast, you're not in Virginia, we just had over this last week up to 19 schools, and I believe it's more than 19 schools, but that was just as of the count yesterday, schools, uh, the public schools in Virginia that have not uh, told kids that they were national merit scholars 
which means because they didn't know about this, they could not apply to certain grants and, and things that they would have been entitled to or at least competitive for, and which cost them their education. And th- that's horrible. That One of the reasons why people moved to, New- to Northern Virginia in particular is because of uh, the ability to be competitive academically, and that was stripped from them. Um, and, and that there's a real big backlash going on right now, and it just shows that education is an, an important issue. And I know that this is this is near and dear to your heart. Maybe talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, to everything that you, you've said so far, um, I, I've, I've read the same articles that you've read. Um, I would tell you that uh, when it comes to education and all politics being local, um, in Virginia, what I tell people is that federal politics is local because we're right there. I mean, quite literally, we're on the front lines right across the river. So what happens in D.C. floats right across the river and, and infects Virginia. So if, that, if those are good things, then it affects Virginia in a good way. And when those are bad things and it infects uh, Virginia's Virginia in a bad way as well. And so. I think that's why education has gotten so much attention as of late is because we do have policymakers and legislators and and staffers that are in D.C. that work in D.C. but live and their kids and their family live in Virginia and go to school in Virginia. And they've seen firsthand that the education system over the past. What are we now? Twenty seven months since the uh, since the pandemic, almost three years um, have been failing the children. Uh, our, our schools have our, our test scores have been going down. Um, the, the the public education system has left quite literally has left the the, the public. Um, they, they shut the schools down completely. Uh, parents couldn't send their kids to school. They wouldn't take them when they did take them. They treated them like they had done something wrong. They treated them like criminals. They put masks on them. They separate them. They put them in a in an in, in individual cubicle, not to associate or talk to any of their friends. Um, I don't know any parent that would take their kid to someone's house, and if they were treated like that, would ever take their child back to that house. And so I think that's the frustration with a lot of parents across Virginia, uh, Northern Virginia in particular, that. They they say that the public they didn't leave the public schools the public schools left them, and so it's extremely hard to find private or charter education in Northern Virginia because all of the schools are filled and they're filled with families who can afford to pay the bill, uh, affluent families. So what does that leave in the public school system? It leaves uh, a failing system to working class and low income families who are already struggling and now their children are falling further and further behind their the fellow uh, children of the affluent. And so we're seeing this divide play out in real time. It's scary. I think there's uh, serious implications over the long term when we have a, a larger and larger population of young children that are that aren't being socialized as they should because of the way that they were treated in schools. And then the quality of their education is continuously being diminished because of reduced standards. And those standards are being reduced because policies that are in favor of the Democrat, you know, party line, the, the progressive party line of, of, of equity at all costs end up hurting the people that they claim to want to support. It hurts them the most. And so if if you're if you're affluent and you can send your kids to a high priced private school with a great education and teachers who show up and ready to work and ready to learn with other kids from similar families, they're thriving. 
If you're struggling and you're working class and you can't afford to send your kid to private school or to charter school, well, then your kid is probably struggling. And for the majority of people, the overwhelming majority of young kids, they fall in that latter group. And so that's it's a problem. It's a problem that has national effects, uh, but it's super local to, to everybody, and so, which makes it so, so personal. Yeah, and I think you raised a really good point, and that's something that people need to hear over and over and over again. That when you and I both, because I'm running for the Virginia State Senate, our opponents were champions. Tim Kaine was a champion of equity and defunding the police and that, that whole movement, everything, all the, all those just anti-establishment, you know, anti, um, not establishment. That's not the right word for it, but the, the institutions that we have and, and everything was under attack with the idea that this was going to make things more equitable, right? But in reality, it hurt the very people that they claimed to help. And people have to understand that, that we have to improve all of these systems and we have to get back to, um, you know, opening up our schools and supporting our schools and supporting a lot of these, these institutions, but, but being better about doing it and making sure that they get back to the business of what they were intended to, to do. That these are, um, you know, we don't send our, our kids to school for, because it's a social experiment. We, we send our kids to school, um, for, for education so they can be competitive, not only here in, uh, in, in America, but on the national or the international stage. And we've gotten away from that, but we have to correct uh, the damage that was done over the, as you said, the last 27 months, because it is really, really hurting, um, well, it's hurt everyone, but disproportionately our minority communities. Do you agree with that? that 100%. It's, it's overwhelmingly hurt minority and working class people. I mean, and I'd say working class people because it's black, white, brown, or Asian, and all in between. Uh, if you're on the lower end of the income scale, everything that that comes out negative affects you more than it affects everybody else because you have no choice. You have nowhere else to go. You're mm-hmm. stuck in that school district, and th- and that's kind of where you're where, where you're at. I think the everything in our society that is not run by the government over the last thirty years has shaped and expanded and improved uh, in times 10 there's no way to calculate how much advancement has taken place in in the real world in reality but our government systems who that are outdated that and are archaic such as the public school system is still modeled in the same way that it's been modeled since the 1940s and 50s Mm. and so teaching children the things that uh one failing to teach children in the way even that they were uh, educated back then, but also not educating our children for the future uh, of the future workforce, the, the future of America. And, 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 and three specific ways that draw my attention because I think they're so important in the, in, in the, in the years to come are going to be, you know, medical manufacturing. So our, our STEMs, our, our STEM education, um, our financial education, because people, the lack of financial education, um, is so crucial in the household 
because when individuals and families get into debt, they don't understand how money works. They don't understand how to budget. They don't understand how the economy works. Then they're unable to take advantage of the system to make money, to be more resourceful, to uh, to have a more prosperous, uh, financially prosperous life. And, and and without that education, then they're unable to take advantage of the opportunities. After so long, they think those opportunities don't exist, but they always exist. Uh, it's just the people that are educated in those fields that understand it and they use it to their advantage. And so financial education is, is such a crucial piece to all families. Uh, the medical manufacturing industry is something that's going to be uh, th- that we saw the downfall of not having medical manufacturing here in America during the during the covid crisis um, where people couldn't get the medications they needed. And and the medications that were available, the medical industry jacked the price up, uh, price gouged. Uh, um, working people in order to get uh, to get the insulin shots that they need or uh, any other med- medications that they needed. And the other areas is technology and cybersecurity. I mean, we're, we're in a digital world and I don't think that we have a a coherent national plan at uh, in the Department of Education or in or in the halls of Congress in the Senate that is trying to address the future workforce in this digital space. Mm -hmm. So while everything else is going digital, your televisions, your computers, obviously your microwaves and your, and your refrigerators have IP addresses and uh, uh, that are progressing and becoming more and more advanced uh, in the, in the, in cyberspace, our education system doesn't even address it. And so if we're not addressing it, how can our kids be prepared for the future when this is the future? AI and robotics is the future, but we don't have that. Um, are, so the systems that are in place are completely outdated. And because of that, our kids are coming out of high school with no real skills. And then even this has perpetrated, been perpetrated for so long that even people coming out of college have no skills for today's jobs. And so college is a whole nother layer because there's you know, for-profit industries and and student loans and debt that it, that's attached to that, but it but that is only an outgrowth of the failure of our public education system. And so I, I'm I am a proponent of as many localized community neighborhood schools as possible. One of the things that I would like to do in the future, you know, once I'm elected, is per, put forth the idea of neighbor, neighborhood sponsored schools, mm. um, where you know, and whether that's uh, uh, in a secular version or uh, in, in a religious persuasion, I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of churches I know that would love to revamp their their uh, elementary schools or their middle schools if if they have fallen because they have fallen over the last couple of years. I mean, nothing would nothing would make my heart more uh, more full than to see a family go to church on Sunday with their children and then take their 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 children right back to that church on Monday morning for school. And that way communities grow and they work together and the parents have more control over their education. And, and right now, especially in Virginia, especially in Northern Virginia and Fairfax in particular, that the school, the school system is so large that it's, it's uncontrollable. It's unmanageable. That's why you have these rogue administrators for equity purposes or political purposes or whatever their rationale is that are, are that are able to, promote ideas that people don't know that people don't support and nobody's checking because the, the system is just too big. And here they are withholding um, accolades from, from kids who have earned it 
for for whatever reasons they have and and nobody finds out about it until months and months later we need to we need to downsize uh the localities and 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 where our children go to school to give power back to the parents that's super important the the power of our education system and our our, our ed- elementary junior high high school ed- education system the power needs to reside in the parents and and to do that we need to we need to get smaller and more localized and more focused we need a more focused government mm-hmm. yeah and 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 decentralize really the control yep. because it's it's now like you said people just don't have that choice and you don't have a choice particularly if you're poor uh you, you don't you that's what you have there's nothing that you can do and we we have to change that and it's going to start with we have to stop voting the same people into office time and time and time again you know and I'll and I'll say this uh, about Tim Kaine and Tim Kaine in particular and Tim Kaine if you're listening to this podcast and you want to come in and and talk about it we can but this gentleman's been in office a long time since 1994 94 that's a long time okay now if 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 he would have changed if, if he could have changed if if he was going to change this of course he would have done it before now and i'm not aware of any legislation that he's proposed that would make inroads on any of this are you no, there's yeah. been there's been no uh, legislation put forward by him. No, 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 nothing passed by him. Um, it, it, the politicians at the federal level love to play this game of things that they've done. If you look at you can anybody listen to this podcast can go to congress.gov. You, you type in any member of Congress's name, and on the left side you could you can check a box that says introduced. And so you can find out what they've actually introduced, not just what they've put their name to along with everybody else and see what's been passed. I mean, Tim Kaine has passed two bills in the past 12 years uh, or 10 years in in the Senate. Um, before that, he's a governor. Before that, he's a lieutenant governor. Before that, he's the mayor of Richmond. And before that, he's on the city council of, or, or, or the board of supervisors down in Richmond. I mean, the guy's been telling Virginians how to live for the last 30 years. Uh, how much longer does he think he deserve to have that power in that position? Another 30 years. I mean, he's already 62. So what is he going to be in there till he's 90? Um, and so I, I think there's a growing frustration all across the nation, uh, specifically in Virginia about career politicians. And it's not just career politics because career in the military is 20 years. The, these guys are in here 30, 35 years. I mean, these are lifetime mm-hmm. politicians. And so you, you can, you can uh, bring up, you know, your 20s when you when you did something that wasn't politically uh, involved. But for the past 30 years, telling people how to how to live their lives, legislating them, taxing them, governing them, lording over them. I mean, for till when? When does it ever end to the day that you die? Is, is that is that the, the amount of hubris that some of these politicians have? Um, I think we're frustrated with it. We need. We need leadership that is that is younger, that is more energetic, that has ideas for the 21st century that that speak and act and talk like 2024 to meet people 
in America where they're at at 20 in 2024, not people that are still living in 1994 They're still governing and legislating and conversating like it's 1994. It's just not though. It's just not that time anymore. America's not that place anymore. And so we need to get with the program. We need to get with the future. And that's what I think our campaign represents. It re- represents a push towards the future of what America looks and sounds like with ideas and statesmen leaders who want to serve, not be served that want to, uh, understand and, and, and not seek to be understood. And so that's what we're representing. And that's what we're going to try to give the, the, the people across the Commonwealth, uh, an opportunity to support. Yeah. And let me, uh, along those gears, uh, that, that train of thought, because I really like what you were saying there, that he has been, and that's actually a much longer career in politics than I actually realized that he had. I didn't realize that it was, it went all the way back to, uh, you know, the, the, the mayor of Richmond and even before that. I, I didn't realize it was that long. That is an astounding amount of time. And, and to put it in perspective, like you said, a career in the military is, uh, 20 years. And the same is true of me. You know, a, a career in the FBI was 20 years. I was a little over 20 years. And then military and police prior to that. But you, you combine all that together. Tim Kaine has been in, in office, one, one office or another, well beyond all of my years in service. And I've been in service a, a long time. That's astounding to me. But I think that the key difference is he has made this life, this, his life and his career. Um, whereas you and I, it's completely different. I mean, you're retired. I'm retired. Folks, if you're listening, you have to understand we don't need this headache. This is, and if you've never run for an office before, trust me. It's a lot of work. Uh, I will not have a day off between now and the time uh, my election is in, in the symphony. But unfortunately for you, it's a much longer period than, yeah. than it is for me. Uh, we don't need the headache. So the question is, why are we, why are we doing this? Well, for me, and I, and I, and I'm sure that you feel the same way. It's because we have this sense of obligation of, of giving back to the community, serving the community. And we believe that we have policies that will improve the Commonwealth of Virginia and uh, ultimately, in your case, the, the United States. That's why we are doing it. And we have records that you can go back, life records of changing things, of working, of helping others, serving the nation. Tim Kaine doesn't have that. Uh, if he has not improved or even like you just it talked about the legislation that he's even introduced, that's two in 10 years, two bills in, in, right. in the Senate in two years. That's not a lot. Well, what would I mean, unless he has some great awakening between now and the election in 2024, what is to lead anyone to believe anyone to believe that? He's going to change. And oh, by the way, he is silent. If you think about it, other than the fact that I think, I think today when I heard that he was announcing for re-election, that's the first time I've even heard his name since when he was running for, with, uh, Hillary Clinton as vice president of the United States. I've not even heard much from him between now and then. He's pretty absent. Absolutely. I, I, one of his, one of his superpowers is the, the ability not to be noticed. <laughs> and if, and the more he goes unnoticed, the better off that he is because anybody with any common sense will be able to tell you looking objectively at a record is that he's done very little for the Commonwealth of Virginia. He's done very little for, for, for anybody across America you know, other than, um, change his positions when the time came for him to be a vice presidential nominee. And so, and that's, and that's what he did. 
And so what we're trying to do is, is one, bring that to people's attention, shine some light on him so, so that they can look at his record and, and see what we see, which is he hasn't substantially helped anybody in his time in, in, in across Virginia. And so I would tell anyone who's, who listens to this podcast who, and who has lived in Virginia for over the last 30 years, uh, maybe you've grown up here. Maybe your parents are here. Maybe you have a, a family history here. Just look and, and look around. If if you're in, you know, if you're in low income housing right now in Richmond, Virginia, uh, and your family was in low and ha- low in income housing in Richmond, Virginia, 15 years ago, and your grandparents were in low income housing in Richmond, Virginia, 30 years ago. I mean, the guy is the same guy. And so, mm-hmm. if he hadn't fixed it then, and he hasn't fixed it now, what makes you think that he's going to fix it now that he's you know, in his upper, you know, mid sixties. And so uh, chances are he's not, um, chances are he's not worried about it. So that gives us an opportunity. He is a, he is a, a, an established candidate and, and there comes a lot of advantages with that. However, what we have some advantages too. And so uh, we're younger, we're more, we're more mobile. I believe that we're going to be able to reach people, uh, young people, Latinos, uh, if, if nobody got from my from my last name Garcia, I'm, I'm Mexican American descent, um, uh, Latinos, veterans, the veteran community, the law enforcement community. I think that we're gonna that, that we're gonna give him a run for his money, and at the end of the day, I think we're gonna win. I, yeah. I think we're gonna win for those reasons. And uh, yeah, we need we need leaders at the federal level that are looking to solve problems. And if if you look across the entire complex of industry and agencies that exude out of Washington, um, whether it be our transportation, uh, transportation department is, is failing miserably. We have trains that are, uh, that are derailing. We have, uh, uh, airline industry that is in shambles. We have flights that are grounded and delayed, um, costing Americans money and time that they, that they can't afford. We have water systems. We have, uh, environmental systems that are failing. We have, 700 over 700 sites across America that have contaminated drinking water. 92 of those sites are National Guard bases because of uh, of firefighting foam that contained uh, that contained chemicals that have contaminated water supply. Those are those are structural problems that have existed. Our grid, our electric grid, our power. Uh, every summer there's a there's blackouts. Every every um, winter, there are freezes and blacks out, blackouts. So our grid is bad. Our infrastructure is bad. Our public schools, are, we just talked about, are, are failing. And so it's organization and institution, one after another, that is slowly collapsing in on itself while the politicians in Washington sit around and try to gin up arguments uh, amongst the people so that we don't recognize their mm-hmm. failures. And so all of these things that I bring up, I, I don't bring up to to demonize people. Uh, I, the failure rests at the feet of our political leaders, and you can go no further than someone like Tim Kaine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of failures of systems and, and structure, we, we absolutely have uh, an immigration crisis here in the United States. There's a lot of blame to go around. And by the way, it's not just Democrats, although uh, the Democrats certainly are doing nothing to help the situation. There's a lot of blame to go around. But uh, talk to us a little bit about the immigration crisis, because that is a cascading issue 
that uh, leads to national security issues. It, it leads to human trafficking issues. It leads to drug issues. It leads to all kinds of things. I mean, we have people c- coming across the border every single day that we have no idea who they are. And I'll tell you, as somebody that worked in the counterterrorism world in the FBI, and I did that at, at FBI headquarters, and my, I devoted much of my life to ensuring that people that uh, that mean harm to the United States did not come into the United States. That's where I spent much of my life knowing now that we essentially have turned a blind eye to it and are allowing anyone to cross the border uh, it is depressing. It's scary. And, and I just scratch my head and wonder why we're, we are doing this. But I think most Americans kind of look at this either, you know, it's like you're in the school of this is a humanitarian issue or we just need to keep everybody out. But people are forgetting that there's a lot of other issues that are going on there that if you looked at it from a different perspective, that being national security and the safety of the American people, you would look at it very, very differently. And if you saw what we see coming into the country, it would, it would really worry you. And oh, by the way, if we were to close down the border today, there's a lot of people that are already here that we have no idea who they are, where they came from, and what their intent is. But one thing it does highlight is the damn system's broken. Maybe address that a little bit. Yes, the system is broken. And I want to be careful with my words here so that they're not taken out of context. The The system is broken and the broken system, it, it once again, is laid at the feet of our, our failed political leaders now and over the last 30 years, the border hasn't been substantially uh, addressed since 1986. So think of all your politicians from either side for the last 30 plus years and blame them. Um, oh, by the way, some of them are most of them are still in office today as we as we look at our political leaders. And so the system is broken. And in order in order to write the system or because the system is so broken, the after effects that trickle that, that trickle down from a broken system are a humanitarian crisis where where people are being smuggled, where they're uh, dying in the back of uh, 18 wheeler trailers, where uh, drug dealers and mules are using and abusing young girls and women and children and trafficking them, trafficking them across the border and across Mexico, all the way from Latin America into America. There's uh, a humanitarian crisis at the border. Once even they've they, they've turned themselves in for asylum, we have no place to house them. We have no place to put their children. We have no place uh, to we're we can't separate them, but we can't keep them together either. It's uh, we're we're out of beds. All of the resources that we have uh, that we've given our 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 uh, customs and border patrol um, are being drained. The resources that are meant at the federal level to support working class and low income families, needy families here in America who can't afford the uh, the the rising inflation. Those programs, those monies, those, those resources are being drained to go to the border. And so and the so the people that are being hurt the worst by the border crisis are the people who are already struggling day to day. It's not the affluent. It's not the journalists. It's not the academics. It's not the people here in Washington, D.C. It's working and, 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 and disabled people in our neighborhoods all across this nation. They're the ones that are suffering the, the brunt of 
this crisis. Our, our debt continues to rise because we're borrowing money in order to 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 help this crisis that that no one is actually solving. Uh, and that's just a few of the things that I can name off the top of my head are, are, are part of the problem. We need to fix the immigration system without a, an immigration, a controlled immigration system in which we know who's coming across our borders that we can funnel into you know places of entry and we can make sure that we understand who's coming across the border and why they're coming across the border if they're coming across because they're fleeing um a religious or or political persecution and they're seeking asylum th- well then let's bring them in and make sure that they're that, that that's what they're here to do and let's do it in a in a in a rapid and humane po- uh, uh, way so that we can uh um you know, find out whether or not they're, they are who they say they are. They, they and, and they're able to come in and the system will actually work. And, and if they're not, well, then, well, then we don't have to let them in. But the problem is our immigration system is so slow. Our legal immigration system is so slow. It's so costly. It's so burdensome. It's, uh, it, it's one of these archaic systems that also hasn't been changed in the last 50, 70 years. We, 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 we still act and proceed like it's the 1950s w- with the way that we handle, um, some of these, some of these issues that, that we're dealing with today. And so we need a complete overhaul of the immigration system so that people who want to come into this country legally to work or to face persecution or to visit family members that will be encouraged that they can actually make it happen. My own story. And we talked about this before. Um, is that yeah my wife is a naturalized citizen she was born in latin america and and in the 80s in latin america socialism was breaking out and uh, there was a lot of dysfunction and so her family moved to europe because that's where they could move at the time and that's where she grew up and we we met overseas while i was stationed in the military we we got her a green card once we were married we got her a second green card uh, uh one year after that we got her a third green card five years after that and we finally uh were able to apply for citizenship but that took nearly 10 years it took uh, thousands of dollars it took multiple trips back to embassies and 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 lots and lots of paperwork and handwritten hand delivered mail system that that uh our that our immigration system uh, uh has and it's overly burdensome. And this is from a person who's in the military, whose whose spouse is a military spouse. And so even in that aspect, it was extremely difficult. We have to we have to modernize our immigration system to, to make it easier to navigate. And we need to secure the border so that we can know exactly who's entering, why they're entering. And if and if they're allowed to then it should be simple and it should be easy. And if they're not, then we need to make sure that they're, they're, they're kept out. So the, 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 there is a tendency to blame the people that are seeking a good life. I want to make sure that, that that is not my stance. I encourage anyone to do what's best for their, for their, for their, for their families, for their future, for their kids, for their economic status, for, uh, for a better life, to escape oppression, to escape socialism. I encourage all of those things. But our, but the problem of our immigration, uh, humanitarian crisis right now is not due to those individuals. The problem is due to our political, uh, uh, will and the lack of political will and our political leaders to actually solve this problem because they raise a ton of money. 
because it's a problem. So, and that, that goes on, on both sides of the fence. And so, uh, it, I think that that's, it, it's super important that people understand that dynamic, that it's not the individuals trying to, to seek freedom. Uh, all of our ancestors were seeking something when they came here. It's the system that has completely failed the people that it's supposed to, that's supposed to work for. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate you bringing that up. And it really does highlight a problem that um, thinking of, and to put it in perspective, you have a woman that's married to an American serviceman that came here and had to go through all of that red tape to get to where she is now. And if you're not in that situation, then it's then it's even worse. And we are looking at, at, at a society now that with Within minutes, within a couple of minutes, we can, we can determine who won a $300 million Powerball uh, <laughs> winnings, but yet we can't determine, you know, uh, we can't get you through the system, even though you're married to, legally, you'd have a right to be, stay here in the United States because you're married to a U.S. service member and it, and it takes, you know, 10 plus years. That, that's absolutely ridiculous. And, and I just think that. It, it, in my opinion, over the last two, three years in particular, we are, we are just so distracted on things that we should not be concerned with or are really not the realm of the government and not doing the things that we ought to be doing. I heard it said once, you know, you got to keep the main thing, the main thing. And our politicians are involved in things like, you know, reaching down. Look at the FBI, for example, reaching down into school board meetings and encouraging people to uh, call in and, 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 and label these people as domestic terrorists when that's not even the role. Of, I mean, if you're if you're in really a school board meeting, that's, you know, you got local police officers there to deal with it, right? If you're disorderly, you're disorderly. But, you know, <laughs> well, why is the federal? Why are our federal resources being put into things like that when we have bigger issues to deal with? And and you meant you kicked all this off when you were talking about uh, computer training and IT and AI and and technology. That we have the technology to improve these systems, we just don't. And I think that I really like the fact that you want to put a focus on improving these systems, you know, so we can sort people out a lot quicker. Than, than we are. But, uh, the other thing too, and I, I want to tell you, uh, you being a, you know, being a military, having, having a military background and, and being in the U.S. Senate, obviously, uh, funding our military, equipping our military, this is going to be a big issue as well. And I heard something today, as a matter of fact, that was very, very disturbing. You know, we have this, um, situation with between Russia and Ukraine and, and Putin now is really getting a bit desperate. And he was talking today about, uh, you know, if it, uh, if I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially if, if people threatened our existence, meaning the Russians, then he would start a nuclear war. Okay. And that, that's Putin. Now that's on, that's over in Russia. And then of course we have China and that's a problem. Um, this is a very dangerous, we're in a different, dangerous time. And I think that people have gotten so caught up in the social issues that are going on in the United States that they're forgetting that, you know, we do have issues around the world. And this is a very threatening place. And, and I'm very concerned about the state of our military and the fact that we have this one adversary, China, which has a larger navy than, than we do. And they're very well equipped. How do I know that? Because they've stolen all of our mm -hmm. technology. And then, of course, you have Russia that feels very, very threatened uh, and backed into a, a corner, but they are a nuclear state. Um, maybe address that a little bit about, you know, what are your thoughts about the state of our military? And in the Senate, what would you do um, to 
address that? And where do we need to go with our military? Well, the, the, the individual soldiers, I think, are are prepared. And course, we're the yeah. we're the we're the we're the greatest fighting force across the nation right now, and 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 I don't see that changing. Um, the degradation in the force is not at the is not at the individual soldier level. Um, it, it comes from a bloated bureaucracy within the Pentagon and and throughout the force, where there's more and more money that keeps being flooded into the Department of Defense, and I don't know what positives that we're getting for the money um the army has failed now i think two or three years in a row they failed an audit so they they can't find their money and it's a growing frustration with our institutions uh and 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 that's kind of the the linchpin to all of these issues the trust in our institutions is dwindling and on every at every institution not just the army the military all institutions all all institutions institutions, yeah yeah the the department of education department of transportation the department of immigration the department of homeland security justice justice all all of our institutions if you asked one if you asked a democrat if they trusted an institution they would either say yes or no and then the exact opposite would if you asked a republican and but neither one of them it'd be hard you'd be hard to find two both a democrat and a republican that say they both trust whatever institution you named the only one that might happen is probably the military um but that would just depend on the people and so b- back to that i think a, a, a bloated bureaucracy in in the department of defense has hindered and continues to hinder uh our readiness i think if you go back to the that to the obama administration for for one uh is where the readiness crisis began uh with recruiting and retention and so, uh, in those timeframes, I don't remember the exact year off the top of my head, but there was a concerted effort many years back that, um, the military was being filled with too many people from the Southeast, uh, too many Georgians, Floridians, South, uh, South Carolinians, North Carolina, Texas, Alabama, Oklahoma, th- those states, there's too many people from those states entering our military, making it quote unquote, less diverse. Um, as it was, that was, as it was portrayed. So recruiters moved from the Southeast and started, um, and, and started moving recruiters towards the, 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 the coasts. And lo and behold, they couldn't get the recruits that they needed. And so we, we started rather than address those recruiting woes and, and try to beef up our military with people who wanted to serve, we just decided to start to cut, cut manpower, uh, in order to meet the goals, right? So if you can't, meet the objective you just lower the objective that's how they looked at it and now we we, we won't get yelled at when we go in front of congress and, and so that's what's happened and it's happened for um what it, it stopped happening during the, the previous administration and then once the biden administration has taken back over we, we've seen the struggle with recruiting and retention even with COVID. um and so th- there's a variety of reasons why uh, a lot of the a lot of the policies, personnel policies that, that have made attention with, you know, the 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 diversity and equity and CRT, you know, based training and 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 that has a that has a portion to do with it too. But it's also it's a loss of, loss in, in confidence of our leaders, and I, I think that you know, in order for us to to get confidence back from a from a military perspective and gain some respect or regain some of our authority uh, in the national security space geopolitically with this Russia and China conversation is that we need to be, we, we need to know what we're doing. 
and I, I, I you keep using the phrase focused government uh, because I think it's important. We need we need a focused government. Re- Republicans talk about having a super small government. Democrats typically talk about having an all encompassing government. Uh, right now, we need we need a focused government. We, we need institutions that perform their job and perform it well, not do other things that aren't its job. And so from a military perspective, we need to understand what our job is from a Ukraine perspective. What is our goal? I, I have yet to hear an end game solution come out of the administration. Uh, are, are we are we prepared to go to war if if Putin doesn't win? Are we are we not? Are we going to are we prepared to hand over money f- forever? I mean, and, and then if the, if if whatever the answer to that is. What's the outcome um, so that we know? And if the American people know, then we can make a decision. Is it we're going to we're going to push Putin back at, at all costs forever? OK, well, let's talk about that. Is it that we're going to fund Ukraine until uh, in order to bleed the, the national treasure out of uh, out of Russia and make them weak and, and like like Afghanistan in the 80s? Is, is that is that the end game? I don't know. But if if the administration had a plan, they should voice it with the American people and we can discuss it and say, do we want to keep giving all this money to to the Ukraine or not? Do we want to escalate or do we not? Um, I, I don't know what they're doing. And I think the distrust comes because no one knows what they're doing. And we need a government that is focused on doing what it's supposed to do. We need a strong military that's equipped and manned and trained to defeat the enemy um, I, as a 22 year army soldier. Uh, I the I always say the military is not a peacekeeping force. It's not to meant to keep the peace. It's meant to rage war and kill enemy and take land and secure it until we don't do, do we no longer need it. And if we're not doing that from an army perspective or from a military perspective, then what are we doing? And I, I think um, if if as long as we keep looking for. Uh, problems or the enemy to throw to throw money at the 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 Pentagon will continue coming up with enemies for us to to throw money at, and so we we need to get more focused on what we're doing, uh, and and get rid of some of this bureaucracy, some of this fraud, waste, and abuse that that takes place. Track our dollars, focus ourselves into what we were supposed to be doing, not all this other stuff we're not supposed to be doing. Yeah, I think it's disheartening to you know people going into the military. That you mentioned the army. The army is, I think. Uh, quote, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this, 40% low on the recruiting uh, goals. Well, they just lowered the goal. (laughs) Yeah, well, before that, yeah, and it's a a very interesting thing because, you know, we keep doing that with the debt ceiling, right? Yeah, we're coming up on the debt ceiling. Okay, great. We'll just keep raising the debt ceiling and then we're we're fine. Um, We have to stop this this shell game. We have to. We have to stop it. And that's, by the way, it's not just the military. It it was like that in the Department of Justice. It's it's like that all over the federal government. And uh, that's why I always laugh when I hear people say that they want to take over the the healthcare, government-run healthcare you know and, uh, and I'm in the healthcare business now uh, and I just laugh when I hear that because anybody that says that never actually worked for the government if you work for the government like you and I did you don't want the government anywhere near <laughs> Your healthcare yeah. or anything. Uh, if you want poor healthcare, that's exactly what you would do. But uh, but I'm saying that because it, it is a shame. Because like you, you know, I was in the Navy and the individual sailor and the you know the the people 
The, the people that would make Americans proud if they could spend a day with anyone is, uh, our service members. You know, they, they really are, uh, young, you know, really young people doing extraordinary things and things that most Americans would never even put themselves, you know, positions that they, they would put themselves into. They really will make you, uh, uh, proud. It's not the service members. It's the people directing the service members, our members of Congress, our executive leadership in the, in the federal government, the executive branch. Uh, that, that's where the disservice is. And we, we owe them better and we owe them um, the the equipment and the training that they need. And to me, all of this woke nonsense that is being thrown at the military, that, that would be the first to go. We need to get rid of all of that and get back to what is the business of the military and the military. It's to be the military and to be there for national defense and, and wage combat if, if called upon to do so. And they need to be effective uh, in doing that. And everything that the military does training wise should be geared towards that. Okay. Again, all of the other quote unquote moral issues and all that, that's for another place and, and other, you know, other people to focus on. It is not the focus of, of the military. And, uh, you know, it, it's just, it, it just worries me. And I, we do need, and I think that people getting into the United States Senate and into the House of Representatives with your kind of a background, um, would be better equipped to, to deal with that. Cause you've been on the receiving, you and I both have been on the receiving end of the, of what Congress and the executive branch pushes out. We've been on the receiving end of that. And so there's no one better equipped to, uh, create these policies. You know, I, a lot of the social stuff, I always, I always, it's, I would scratch my head. I know when I was in the Navy, I would hear things that would come down from, from Congress. And I was just thinking, whoever made this policy was never actually in the Navy. Right. They, they were never, they never spent years at sea, months at sea, uh, and in combat zones because had they done that, they would have never made this decision. They never would have. You know, that's why we need people with your background and your experience in these positions, you know, so you can have common sense um, decisions that are made. And we need to hold our military leaders accountable because and one one final thing, um, our military leadership. And I saw this not only in the military, in my time in the military, but certainly in the FBI and um, the executive leaderships in the Department of Justice. Many of these people. To include top, the, the top, and we've, we've seen examples of, of this over the last couple of years. Our top leaders think they are politicians. They think they're running for office and they make decisions as though they're running for office. And, uh, we've seen that with a lot of the social agendas that are being pushed, uh, forced upon the military now. And our senior military leadership's on board with that. And they're more concerned with that and looking good in answering um, the, you know, the president and, and congressional leaders, um, they're more concerned with how they're perceived over on Capitol Hill than they are in, in leading the organizations. I mean, at least that's my perspective. Maybe your thoughts on that. I, I would tell you that you, I, I would tend to agree with that perspective. Yeah. Um, because, uh, especially as of late, which is why I think so many people are frustrated. Some, so many veterans like ourselves are frustrated with what we've seen, uh, because, service is, is supposed to be that it's service. Um, I've spent my life serving the nation and I didn't, I haven't grifted off of my service from the nation. And I think the frustration from veterans like ourselves is that we look and we, we, we're starting to see, and we have been seeing now for some time, a lot of grift in, in, in 
the halls of the Pentagon and some of our former military leaders, where the reason that they want to be nice and be liked on Capitol Hill rather than make the tough decision, the right decision, they would rather go with the popular, the, the, the politically or congressionally approved version of, of whatever the policy is, is because in 24 months from that point, they're probably going to be a quote unquote consultant in Northern Virginia, and they're going to go back to those same congressmen and ask for money for on behalf of their their industry, and that's where their that's where their allegiances and their eyes are already looking out to, and and that's a that's a cynical view, but I think it's accurate because that's just what, what we see. I mean, we're we're here in Northern Virginia. I spent my last five years in the Pentagon. I, I, I've seen. I see the reaction and the transition from a lot of these high level high level officers and political appointees. Once they leave the DOD, they they go right into industry and, they, and they're paid a lot of money to to lobby the the same people that they were just you know talking to the day prior. And I think the frustration of veterans now, and if if people are listening to this and they kind of sense the the sense of urgency that I tend to speak with, it's because I do have a, a, a strong sense of urgency. I think that if we don't correct some of these problems, if we don't if we don't focus our government to do and our institutions to do what they're supposed to do, we're going to continue to lose credibility. And if we lose credibility, who is going to govern? How can you govern? We have a, we have a we have a, a border that's indefensible. We have water that's undrinkable. We have uh, an education system that uh, it, nobody can be educated on. And, and, and we have a government that's ungovernable because we, we are held hostage by the, the, the false choice of everything that I want or, and nothing that he wants or vice versa. And so in order to govern, we're, we're going to have to figure out what solutions, do, what problems exist, how we solve them, and then actually move the ball to solve them. If we just look at it and, and admire the problem, as we say in the Army, if you're just going to admire the problem, then 30 years will go by and it will just be 30 years worse. And so it's super important that we get leaders in office that want to do the right thing, that have the experience, the education, the drive, the motivation, the ideas to to put forth and fight for those things to work towards solving some of the problems and get America, get our, our Commonwealth back on track. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And very, very well said. And boy, I really appreciate you spending the time with me today. And any last words, any anything? Well, you know, how can people get hold of you, uh, your website, any information if they want to learn more about you, if they want to support you? And by the way, guys, uh, you know, I the, the, and I've mentioned this before, the most unsavory thing for anyone running for office is asking for money, but it's a reality. And Tim Kaine's going to have a lot of money. So, uh yeah, if you can, if you can support uh, Eddie, please do that. But how would they reach out to you and and contribute to your campaign? If, so, so our website is eddiegarciava.com. That's eddiegarciava.com. Yeah, please go there to to support, donate. We, we like Mike said, we're going to need all the help. We're going to need all the support. We're going to need all the donations from all the grassroots and regular people. In order for regular people to actually uh, uh, have a chance in this system, we need people to support them. Or, or if not, we still have, we will be left with the. With the same old, same old, in order to get a different output, we need a different input. And so we're trying to be that different input. So go to eddiegarciava.com, uh, support. You can also find us on all the social media platforms at Eddie Garcia VA. 
Yeah, fantastic. So please get out there, support him. And I really enjoyed you coming out here today and talking. Thank you for having me. Let's make this a regular thing because I want to hear about the campaign as we we move on. Absolutely, we'll do. All right, Mr. Kane, if you want to come on the podcast, I'd love to have you as well. <laughs> Maybe we could have both of you here. We could have a debate. That would be fantastic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but we'll see. But thank you so much for have, uh, coming on the show. And, and everybody, I look forward to talking with you all soon. Again, this is Mike Van Meter from Mike Van Meter Show. Look forward to this year. And this is going to be a tough year, but a good year. And we can do it, folks. And we'll talk with you soon. <laughs>